Hey everybody, welcome to our Week in Review. I am Stephen Cox, along with the chair of the King County Democrats, Shasti Conrad. Hello, Shasti. Hi, Stephen. And managing partner of Left Wing Digital, Will Casey. Hello, Will. Always good to be here, Stefan. Always good to have you, man. So this week, uh, we are talking about the situation at the border. And then in the second half of the show, I talk with Representative Jesse Johnson about the progress of police reform bills in this year's legislative session. Uh, before we dive into immigration, I do want to get both your takes on the voting bill that passed the Georgia State House yesterday because it was just breathtaking in its overt uh, attempts to suppress the vote, uh, specifically the black vote. Um, observers are calling it Jim Crow 2.0. Among the many things that it does, uh, it makes it a crime to give water to people waiting in line to vote. Shasti, what are your, your just top line thoughts about this? Yeah, I think it's it was it's it's horrifying. Um, and it also shows again how uh white supremacy will hold on um with everything that it has i mean seeing that image of you know all white men standing with the with brian kemp while they signed it in a back room um while a you know black woman state representative park cannon someone who i know who is um an activist who, uh, you know, is kind of like our, you know, Brianna Thomas and Nikita Thomas or Nikita Oliver out here, um, you know, to have to see her being dragged away um, while that is happening. It's just disgusting. And it is a reminder of like, we have to we have to fight. We can't ever rest. We have to keep fighting this because of how hard uh, white supremacists will try to hold on. Yeah, the optics were just horrifying. Will, what were your thoughts about uh, this, this, this law? Well, I mean, I think like Shasti hit on a, a lot of key points, and so I just want to add a little bit of you know historical context here, right? I mean, this is a this is a battle we've been having for you know hundreds of years, right? And the last time that we actually, or I, mean, I should say, the first time we actually had a multiracial democracy, you know, in the American South was when federal troops were occupying Atlanta, right? And I think that that's something we need to always be remembering in these conversations is that this is something that, you know, caused extreme amounts of violence in our country and it still does. Um, so the fact that we have, you know, even the fact that there are lines that could last hours where people would need water is is absurd, right? We should be having um, voting laws that like we have here in Washington state and every state in this country, but particularly uh, in, in the South where there's just centuries of discrimination and history of, of trying to keep people of color from the polls. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Biden uh, responded to this in his very first White House press conference saying, quote, it's sick. And then uh, referring to what is probably a coming battle over H.R. 1, uh, which would override this law and others like it. Uh, he said that he is open to reforming the filibuster back to a talking filibuster. And then he said, quote, if there is a complete lockdown and chaos as a consequence of the filibuster, we will have to go beyond what I'm talking about. So we'll be tracking that, gang. Uh, and at the same press conference, Biden was also hit with questions about the situation at the Mexico border. So we will talk about that now. And, you know, before I get into the politics of this, I think it's really, really important to ground this by talking about the human toll, the human cost, because there's real suffering on the ground there. Shasti, I know that you went to the border in 2018 during uh, what was a similar influx. Can you just give us a sense of, uh, of what it's like there? Yeah, I went down um, to the to the border because you know the media was reporting on um, the, you know children were being put in cages and and I just I I just needed to see it you know for myself and try to help however I could and I went and I volunteered with Catholic charities down there in the Rio Grande Valley and I mean it 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 was 
horrifying to see, you know, the, the, the numbers of people who are just, who have been traumatized by going through, by being picked up by ICE, by going through um, what ICE, ICE basically was torturing them. And what we would, what we would, were seeing every day was that there would be, you know, sometimes over a hundred people that would be just dropped off at the bus station um, by ICE and they, ICE had taken all of their belongings. They had nothing. And, you know, it was just the, the stories of what we heard while what they were uh, going through, but being put through with ICE was, it was, it was reminiscent of the Holocaust. It was like, they were put in cages. They were separated by their families. They would be put through drills where they would be, um, Asked, they would be like you know, forced to get up like every two hours. They'd be sprayed with water. They would talk about the freezer and about how it was so cold and that they would, many of them got sick. One mother talked about her, her daughter had a, a raging fever, but had been put in a different cage than her. And she could hear her daughter screaming and they wouldn't let her get to her, her child. And, um, it was absolutely horrifying. Um, and so, you know, that's what we have to remember that these are, these are people who are, who are coming from trauma and then being traumatized through this, this process, um, by ice. And they also talked about psychological torture where they would, um, run them through drills of like, what's the third stanza of the star spangled banner, you know, who's the fourth president. And then they would tease them of like, Oh, you know, if you do this, we'll get you, you know, you'll get to go to the world cup. Um, and they would dangle things in front of them. And, and just, I mean, it was just horrifying and just absolutely awful. Um, what you would hear people had gone through. I, I just need to kind of take a second to just process um, everything you just said. And I'm sure that you had to take similar time after seeing it firsthand and, you know, we know that the, the GOP is trying to create this false equivalence between, you know, what happened under the Trump administration and now what is happening under Biden. And I think my gut instinct says they're trying to do this because they have no answer at all to the success of the stimulus package. So they're trying to make whatever political the hay they can. But we'll talk about the reality. Unpack this here. Is any of what is happening right now the result of Biden's policies or, or lack thereof? I mean, not I, yes and no, right? I mean, I think the answer is on, on the, the immediate short term, not at all, right? But you wouldn't know that from the media coverage. Um, there's only one story that I've seen that's actually reported this reasonably, which is an analysis from the Washington Post uh, that hopefully we can put in show notes and it, so you can read it for yourself. Yep. Um, but I think that the key takeaways there are that we are seeing what's basically a seasonal pattern. The only reason we really didn't see it last year was because of the pandemic locking down even more international travel. But in a broad sense, we have to realize that this is partially our responsibility as a country, right? This is people are coming because the fact that the, like these countries that they're fleeing from as refugees are essentially failed states in large part because of American intervention in you know the 70s, 80s, and, and even before that. Um, and so I think that you know we partially are responsible, if not entirely responsible, for breaking uh, those those governments and exposing these people to the violence that has followed. And so we do have a responsibility here, but it's not as if you know Trump's policies were working and Biden's are not, right? And I think that that is something that we have to make sure we you know keep focused on in this narrative is that. We have a role to play here. There's long-term systemic investment that we need to be making because this is also not going to stop happening. 
part of the reason these people are coming is because of climate change and the extraordinary natural disasters they've suffered over the last year or so that has wiped out whatever you know material comforts or or ability to sustain their families these people had in the first place right and so i think that that's this is something that every forecast is showing us is going to keep happening unless we do something about it and we can but i think that that's not something that he can solve in a single executive order, right yeah, it's absolutely going to take legislation, and we'll get into that uh, in, in, in just a couple minutes, because I want to get your thoughts on that. But, I mean, you talk about intervention and the way that this country has uh, intervened uh, with, you know, the the countries in, in Central and, and South America. If you if you just want a quick primer, uh, you know, uh, Google CIA Guatemala, and that'll tell you quite a bit. Um, I, I would also just note that a lot of the people who are there started these trips months and months and months ago before Biden was even inaugurated. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of work to try to connect the dots there. And it, this brings to mind what I'm seeing in the media coverage. And you saw a lot of this. I don't know. The, the, there was a very aggressive stance from the media at the, the White House presser yesterday, almost to be transmitting something like, look, we can be tough on Biden, too. You know, we were tough on Trump, but we're going to be tough on Biden, too. Well, what is your assessment of how the media is covering this situation? Well, I mean, I think it's something that it, it's this has been a long time hobby horse of mine, <laughs> Stefan. But the fact that we, you know, in this in this country expect journalism to come from this uh, mythical place of, of moral objectivity. Right. Um, and what we, you know, deserve from reporters who are, have access to talk to administration officials is to get to the bottom of this issue. Right. Explain to people exactly what is going on and why it's happening, not to sort of like maintain this mythical neutrality between, you know, both sides and treating their, you know, as, as, as frankly, um, you know, equivalent opinions, because they're just not, right? Like, we don't have two parties in this country that are both interested in solving problems or developing policies that are based in reality. It's just not true. And the longer that, you know, we have a, a, a journalism um, that centers this idea that like, oh, well, if Democrats say, you know, white and Republicans say black, the truth must be gray. Um, you know, instead of just figuring out, like, maybe sometimes the truth is white or black. And in this case, you know, we need to be hearing about the stories of what is happening in these people's home countries, the stories of how we're working to better serve them than we did in the last uh, administration, because I can guarantee you one thing, you know, we at least can rest assured that the cruelty that's happening is not intentional at this point, right? There's a lot of resistance from Customs and Border Patrol. But uh, at least from our leadership, this is not something that we're sending a signal to try and discourage people from coming here as if that was ever, you know, something that would have worked in the first place. Chesty, what are your thoughts? I do think that we as consumers of media have to demand that like what Will is saying, we have to demand that we want to know what's actually happening. We are not going to put up with these manufactured crises where we're, you know, like we're, we're not going to be driven by clickbait. And that is going to that requires us to be more disciplined in, in seeking out better journalism sources and really then giving kudos to those journalists who are standing up and who are telling the stories better. You know, I, I have a good friend, Paula Ramos, um, who works for Vice, who is Jorge Ramos's um, daughter. And like she's doing really great work down at the at the border. I thought Jacob Soberoff on um, MSNBC has been doing really great work on the border. Um, you know, there, there are folks that are that are telling these stories, but it's we've got to be searching for that. And we have to be making it clear that we are not going to continue to be fooled by this sort of gotcha type of journalism. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, both of you have referred to stories and kind of uh, how that's driving a lot of this. And you were alluding to this earlier, um, and I was hoping maybe you could kind of give us a little bit more from your visit in 2018. When you spoke directly to the people who were there at the border, why did they say that they had come? I mean, story after story was, um, you know, these these were these were people seeking asylum. They were leaving um, situations where they were dealing with unbelievable gang violence, um, you know, poverty. Um, you know, people were like fear, like literally, genuinely, like fearing for their lives, and they trekked hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to the border. I did one of the things that was surprising to me because I had just been listening to the media before I went down there was I didn't meet of the like 100 plus people because what I was doing was I was inter- I was um, listening to people who had, who had just gotten sort of dropped off at the bus station and then we were helping them get to and get connected to family members or friends throughout the country. And, and so I, w- I listened to hundreds of people. Nobody was from Mexico. Everybody was from Ecuador. Guatemala, mostly Honduras, um, El Salvador. These are places that the United States, you mentioned the CIA, like these are places that the United States has a history of setting up coups and, and, and enacting this type of violence, which creates the environment that these people are fleeing from. And so, you know, we heard, I heard so many stories, particularly from mothers who were like, they were going to kill me and my children. I had to go. I had to go. And like they're cradling a three-year-old or, you know, sometimes like less than one year old baby. And you look at that baby and you go, yeah, I, w- I get it. Look, I I would go too. If, if I thought that my baby was going to be murdered, then yes, I'm going to walk as however far I've got to go to try to get to safety. And, you know, they believed because we in America talk about the myth of of the American dream of of the of of there being freedom and and security and like and so these people believe that because we have done we have flooded this propaganda and then we don't treat them like that American dream is open to them and so you know that is that's the thing that does, it just gets me is that it's we have we've set this up and then we are we are penalizing and shaming and torturing people who are doing what our ancestors did 100, 200 years ago and coming to America and believing that they could have a better life and they could flee poverty and, and suffering. So, you know, it's it's not what the media is saying. It's not what, you know, in, in 2018, it's certainly not what the Trump administration was saying. These people are coming because there is no other, there's literally no other choice for them. Yeah. I mean, everything you're talking about is just enormously shameful. And, you know, and you mentioned the Trump administration because you were there in 2018. And even when cruelty was the point, the conditions that people were fleeing are so awful that they were still moved to make this incredibly arduous and dangerous trip. Um, at, At Biden's presser yesterday, he did not commit to any executive action on immigration right now or on guns, for that matter, saying uh, he felt, quote, that it was a matter of timing uh, and that he wants to stay focused on the pandemic and infrastructure for right now. From a strategic standpoint, what do you make of that stance, Shasti? I mean, I I think that uh, what 
Biden is is doing is that he is focusing on things that he can he can he can implement some sort of action, right? If we focus on gun violence, he can he can issue an executive order to ban assault rifles. Um, Clinton did that in '94, um, and the immigration issue is something that has been an issue for decades upon decades, and it is multi-layered. As I as I just was talking about about how we're talking about the United States' foreign policy. We are talking about addressing poverty. We are talking about addressing um, asylum and sort of, you know, all, there's so many different pieces to what will be needed to be taken care of to deal with these issues around immigration. And it doesn't move quickly. And so I think that that is part of it. And, and some of that is we as, you know, elected officials, but also we as citizens have to be okay with nuance and we have to be willing to some to not always want it immediately but be willing to like see the process through hold people accountable through that process but these things aren't going to happen overnight they didn't the problems didn't become a problem overnight the solutions are not going to happen overnight as well yeah. Uh, unfortunately, as uh, as an American, I can tell you nuance is not our strong suit. Um, you know, Will, just short of executive orders, as Shasti was saying, which, as we know, are they only last as long as the, the, the person is in office. Uh, what do you think can be done? And this is a huge question, but I'll just give you a bite at the apple here. What do you think can be done to substantively change the situation at the border over time? Yeah, so I think that there's a number of things that we have to do, but I just want to play off of what what Shasti was just saying, which is that like we, you know, don't want to just be sending out the message that we have to take the Biden administration at their word, right? That's not the kind of relationship that progressives have to a democratic administration. It's not the same way, you know, we don't sort of just carry water no matter what um, for the president of our party in the same way that sort of Trump's super fans do, right? Um, but I do want to say that I think. What we've seen out of the administration so far is remarkably talented sort of uh, understanding of how to get things through Congress, right? Like he introduced a $1.9 trillion aid package and without a single Republican vote, got a $1.9 trillion, you know, stimulus package, right? And I think that what it seems pretty clear that he is doing without wanting to say exactly these words is forcing the fight on the filibuster on issues where he knows that not a single Democrat can afford to break, right? Not a single Democrat is gonna break on voting rights or infrastructure funding that involves putting people in their states um, you know, to work immediately, right? And so once we have that, then it creates a much more favorable environment for the entire weight of our progressive wing of the party to come down on anyone who is not going to finally uh, give these people the the justice and security and certainty about their status here in this country that they deserve. Um, because Shasti used the term, you know, like this is the American dream that we're talking about here, but we've been telling dreamers to defer that status for a long time time and i think that that's just not sustainable any longer um and so i just want to make sure as we're talking about this that people don't hear us saying the same thing they've heard from so many other people in the past which is just hold on a little longer right because that's this is not kicking the can down the road this is setting up the stage to where we can actually win the fight right and i think that that is something that we have to hold you know these people accountable for and i think we've seen enough from the administration to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt 
But, you know, that's not to say that we're not, you know, anxiously looking at our watches and making sure that, you know, the time is going to be coming soon. Yeah. And I think when you know Biden talks about it's a matter of timing, I think he's I hear exactly what it is that you're saying, that that you're you're basically building a case over time to where you you, you create the conditions whereby immigration reform can happen in a genuine way because you've cleared the field with these other issues first. Um just wrapping up on this, Shasti, no matter how many times we witness this, and as we've talked about, it is something that is cyclical. It has happened in the past. It's probably going to happen again in the future. It's just heartbreaking. And I think people listening want to know what we can do. You got involved. Do you have any thoughts on, on what people can do now? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's still organizations that are doing good work down at the border. Um, I, I volunteered with Catholic Charities and, um, you know, the sisters were incredible that I that I worked with down there. So certainly supporting, um, you know, those types of organizations. But honestly, I think also it's fighting the misinformation that the media keeps sort of centering around this being some sort of cri- it's a manufactured crisis instead of focusing on people. You know, at the end of the day, we are talking about people's lives, and we absolutely can never forget that. These are people that are have that have endured and are enduring unimaginable hardship because they're trying to do what's best for their families. Um, and so we just we can't we can't keep falling into the sort of political game um, that that this is just, you know, something that, you know, is a big crisis and they're coming in hordes. It's like, no. People are doing what they've been doing, which is they're seeking a better life for their families. And that's what is as often as people can recenter the conversation there. Remember that picture, picture a mother, a young mother. These are young mothers holding a one year old baby. And think about do you are you okay with that baby being murdered? Honestly, that is what it that is what these people are making these decisions around. So that's what we have to focus back on. Will you have something to add to that? Yeah, I just want to close with with one other thing, because I I do think it's important to focus on this reality, right? Um, We're seeing some really tough resistance from rank and file officers in the Customs and Border Patrol to Biden's attempts to change this. And Obama dealt with the same situation. It took him six years to finally write a tight enough memo that would create disciplinary uh, actions uh, that, you know, force sort of compliance from these folks, right? Um, But that being said, uh there i was working on the congressional campaign in 2018 when this was going on and um you know the candidate i worked for was representing a couple of these folks who didn't want to do that who didn't want to be a part of this process and their cases are still working their way through the federal government right like this is a this is a huge huge like path dependency a huge amount of inertia that we're dealing with this on this on this issue um but i do think in the way that you've seen biden bring in fema as a disaster relief organization rather than in trying to sort of move some of that stuff out of customs and border patrol they are like we can have faith that there are people in the administration who understand these problems they are listening to the people who are pressuring them and i just think that we need to always keep that in mind as we you know deal with these stories because it can be kind of discouraging it like talking to one of those people who called our office and hearing like, I know where there are kids who people are not reporting on yet. 
is a memory that I will never forget. Um, and it's and it's easy to feel overwhelmed, like we can't really do anything about this, but but we can. There are things that each of us can do in sort of helping to shape this debate um, and just pushing back on the people in our lives to make sure that they're remembering the humanity of the situation like Shasti was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to kind of button things by saying, you know, compassion, I think, is the order of the day here uh, with the situation. Uh, so uh, we're going to take a quick break right now, gang, and then we will be right back with my conversation with Representative Jeff. Johnson. Police reform has been one of the top priorities of the Democratic caucus in this year's legislative session. We are now past the halfway point, so I thought that we would check in with one of the House members leading the charge on police reform, 30th LD Representative Jesse Johnson, who is also the vice chair of the House Public Safety Committee. Representative Johnson, it's good to see you again. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. Glad to be here. So you are part of the Democratic Caucus Policing Policy Leadership Team. Can you just briefly talk a little bit about how you personally approached the challenge of determining which police reform legislation to put forth this year? Yeah, so last year, obviously after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and here locally with Manny Ellis, um, I think there was a call to action from community to reform the system. And although communities of color have been demanding that we look at this for decades, we finally had a call from the majority to um, look at how we can reform our system. And so um, our police leadership team uh, really put the the ball in the hands of uh, the community to do these bills. And typically law enforcement agencies work with legislators to reform law enforcement, but we wanted this to be entirely community led. And so uh, in the past six, seven, eight months, we've been working directly with community on these bills uh, along the way. But these were written directly in, in partnership with them. And, uh, and and I think that's unique because it's just a unique year, uh, given what's happened uh, in 2020. So um, that's really how I approached it, was making sure that families were at the center of the bills and that their lived experiences would be elevated in the bills. And anecdotally, you know, I hear from people in the community that they're seeing this year's results kind of as a mixed bag. And I want to get your take on that in a little bit. But I want to start by talking about two of your bills that have advanced to the Senate. The first is 1054. Uh, This is aimed at restricting police tactics. Which tactics specifically does it restrict? So 1054 um, will uh, ban uh, chokeholds and neck restraints. So those will not be allowed to be trained on, will not be allowed to be used um, by our law enforcement. Uh, the same with no-knock warrants, um, which obviously no-knock warrants have a uh, history that's rooted in racism and the war on drugs and disproportionately used against people of color. And it puts the law enforcement officers themselves in harm's way too. And so that's one that will be permanently removed. And then we'll also restrict tear gas. And so tear gas will only be able to be used Um, when there's a barricaded suspect or a hostage or in our Department of Corrections facilities if there's a riot because those DOC officers do not have guns in in prisons and so that that could be a challenge. So we want to make sure that there's um, that tactic available. But it will no longer allow tear gas um, at protests in the streets uh, like we saw last summer in Seattle. Uh, The bill will also um, ban certain military equipment like grenades and drones and um, Uh, MRAPs and uh, some of these really kind of big and scary looking military equipment that's kind of excessive for our community. Uh, 
And then finally, it will restrict shooting at moving vehicles and uh, vehicular pursuits. And so vehicular pursuits are obviously very controversial as well, because that's how a lot of times our officers are able to catch folks that are involved in DUIs. And so we're going to allow for uh, vehicular pursuits for DUI cases or really terrible cases, but not for minor possession of drugs or, you know, things where it can, you know, harm innocent bystanders. It's not worth it for the officer to pursue that individual. So that's what 1054 will do. It's a tremendous bill, and it covers so much ground. Uh, I also want to talk about uh, 1310. This restricts the use of force and uh, prioritizes de-escalation. And, you know, I-940 passed a couple of years ago with a lot of the same intent, and I think people have been very disappointed at how it's come up short. Uh, In what ways will 1310 go further? So 1310 is going to actually finally create a statewide standard on use of force that is uniform across our state. So right now um, you can go to certain jurisdictions and there's different use of force standards in different jurisdictions. Uh, I-940 was supposed to create sort of the the guardrails for our officers, our departments to go through, Um, but 1310 will restrict use of force um, in a lot of different ways. First, it'll restrict use of force Um, in general so that less lethal alternatives have to be exhausted when available and when appropriate before any use of force can proceed. And then also it will implement a stronger deadly force statute and say that deadly force is only narrowed to an imminent threat of serious physical injury or death. And so deadly force uh, right now is really broad. And so we want to make sure that that's narrowed. So 1310 is going to really start to begin the process of rebuilding trust, I think. And how are you seeing the chances, as I mentioned, uh, these two bills uh, made it out of the House, they're in the Senate. How do you see their chances of advancing and and getting to the governor's desk? I think they're good. I mean, I think we obviously still have some roadblocks, but the Senate's a different animal than the House. So, uh, you know, I would say, obviously, there's more conservative members. And so we want to make sure that we're addressing that. But I think that um, the leadership that Senator Peterson and Dinger have done, um, has been great. So we'll work with them and get it to the finish line. Well, so, yeah, you mentioned both of them, and there are two bills of theirs that I would love to discuss. Uh, one is uh, SB 5051. This is Senator Peterson's bill. Um, this is the decertification bill. This would disallow uh, cops that have been fired for cause from getting rehired in other jurisdictions. For people who may not know, how common of a problem is that? It's actually... Um, one of the things I've learned from different groups like the ACLU and others is cops jump jurisdictions all the time. It's like, it's one of the biggest issues we have. You know, the officer that uh, killed Jesse Saray in Auburn had previously been um, disciplined 13 times in the past yeah. and he was not decertified. And so that just tells you right there, you know, officers can jump jurisdictions and, and, and are able to get a job because there's a shortage and um, recruitment and retention is very difficult. But um, we want to make sure that our officers um, are um, the, the best officers that can, there can be out in our communities. It's that important because human life is that important. So um, I think this bill is really a cornerstone piece of this uh, legislation package. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really is a matter of life and death, uh, as you say. And uh, also, Senator Moncadengra's bill 5066 would require officers to intervene when they see a fellow officer using excessive force. 
I don't think I have to put too fine a point on this, considering what we saw with George Floyd. But I'm just wondering your thoughts generally on the importance of this bill here in Washington. It's it's very important and um, it gets at the police culture of, you know, standing up for your fellow officer in, in uniform. But if you see something wrong, wrong is wrong. And I think that preserves and protects human life again as our law enforcement's highest value by saying that we have actual policy and law that says that you have to intervene when you see something wrong. And so I think this is a big shift uh, towards um, social justice in our communities. So those are a number of the bills that did uh, make it through their uh, respective houses. There are a number of bills that also came up short. I want to just get your thoughts on a couple of those. One of them was Representative Ty's uh, bill, 1202, that is that would challenge qualified immunity. Uh, qualified immunity is sort of roughly put the reason why officers who kill are almost never convicted. And then your bill, uh, 1203, had to do with establishing community oversight boards to hold police accountable. And that, I believe, got stalled in committee. Legislating police accountability often proves to be very, very difficult. And I'm wondering, why do you think that is? I, I mean, I think it's, it's uh, first of all, it's, it's a very honorable profession. And I think, uh, you know, they take a lot of honor and pride in the work that they do, which they should. But I also think there's a stigma that if you are making changes, then someone's done something wrong. And so when we're doing these statewide policies, officers are saying, well, <clears throat> we've only had you know, like one um, really bad case in this department or this department's been really well. We're sort of, we're, you know, gold standard, Kalia standard, this and that. It's a bad apples theory the kind of thing. Is, yeah. Yeah. And I think the problem is we, we're, we're trying to address, we're trying to be proactive as well in trying to address issues. And, you know, just because one department's doing really well um, doesn't mean they all are. So we're putting protections in place so you get treated the same no matter what city you're in. And so that's really important. I think that's very difficult. It's part of the, the, the problems we run into. So getting back to where we started our conversation, uh, I mentioned that you know community members had, I think, very high expectations for police reform for all the reasons that you mentioned. Um, not to uh, also not to mention the fact that you know there are fairly comfortable Democratic majorities in each chamber. I'm wondering how you personally assess where things stand right now on police accountability legislation. I would I would I would say that we have. In, in, in many ways, I think we kind of overachieved because we had, um, coming into the session, we had 13 priority bills. We had eight in the House, five in the Senate, um, five priority bills directly from uh, community, from the Washington Coalition on Police Accountability, from families. And four of those five direct priority bills from community are still in play to, to get to the governor's desk. That being uh, 5051 on decertification, uh, 1267 on independent investigations, um, 1054 on police tactics and 1310 on use of force. The only one that didn't get from the priority bills was 1202 on the civic cause of action qualified immunity. But um, in general, uh, four of the top five priority bills, 11 of the 13 bills overall in the police space made it forward. And so that's, I think, really, really good for a really controversial year, a politicized year that we've had. And and it's, it's not over. We still have a lot of work to do moving forward. But I think this year has been a, probably the biggest shift in 
uh, police reform we've seen in our state. Well, it's due in large part to your uh, work. You have just been exceptional in this area. And I'll just ask you, because you know this audience is filled with activists who uh, are getting involved, um, which bills would you like to see activists applying the most pressure on right now? Which ones really need the push? Uh, right now, I would say those four that I mentioned, decertification, uh, independent investigations, tactics, and use of force. Okay. Representative Jesse Johnson, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that will do it for our Week in Review. For Shasti Conrad and Will Casey, I am Stephen Cox. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.